Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to two of the researchers of Element AI, Nicole Rigillo, Research Fellow at the Bergruen Institute placed at Element AI, and Jason Stanley, Design Research Lead. We talked to Nicole and Jason about their different professional paths and how they bring their expertise and perspectives into their work at Element AI. Jason explains how in the field of his work, building a good team isn't about comparing or contrasting social to non-social science, but about finding the synthesis of qualities required by a particular case. Nicole brings her anthropological lens into the scientific context and generates discussions about how the work that is being undertaken has deep and irreversible consequences for the way social scientists think. Lastly, they share their advice to young graduates considering to follow a similar path. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Jason and Nicole from Element AI. Hi! Hello! Hello! Hi, um, just before we kind of dive in, I want to contextualize a little bit our talk to our listeners. Um, I'm not sure if you've had the chance, friends, to listen to the episode where we had Julian Kornbeis speaking to um, Element AI and his work uh, in the space of artificial intelligence, but there was a little tiny part in that conversation where he was mentioning that Element AI is somehow this magic space for social scientists. Uh, and I wanted to understand a little bit the history and, you know, how has that come to be? Uh, so maybe uh, we can also learn from, from, from their experience in that space. So therefore, that's how I come to you, um, Jason and Nicole. So maybe before we go into the, this particular story, maybe you can tell me and our listeners a little bit about you. Um, sure. So my name is Nicole Vigillo. Um, I'm an anthropologist. I did a PhD in anthropology at McGill University, and uh, my research at that time was on corporate social responsibility and corporate ethics in India. So after that, I went on to do a postdoc. I did a postdoc at the University of Edinburgh, where I started to become more interested in technology and looked at the ways in which um, people in Bangalore, India, a large city in South India, were using uh, WhatsApp as a political tool. After that, I started this position here at Element AI, where I, my position is officially a, the Bergen Research Fellow at, uh, at Element AI. Um, so I'm here via the Bergen Institute, um, which sponsors anthropologists, philosophers, and artists. Uh, to um, work more closely with AI scientists and people in the biotech field. And on my side, Jason Stanley, I lead the design research team here at Element AI. I've been here for about a year and a half. Uh, so design research is one of the core functions of our product discovery and product development uh, organization. We work with cross-functional and cross-disciplinary teams that include engineers, designers, researchers, uh, sometimes marketing people, people in product management to discover what ideas are worth working on uh, to investigate how people go about solving problems today so that we can 
identify new ways of helping them solve those problems and then to figure out iteratively how we can build solutions for them. So, you know, in, in the course of that, we do a lot of qualitative research on site and with people who could be potential users of the technology or stakeholders of the technology. Uh, my background, um, actually, I, I don't have a formal degree in anthropology, but I guess I am spiritually a, an anthropologist uh, as well as a statistician and a sociologist and all sorts of other things. I, I have a PhD in sociology uh, and I've worked as a qualitative researcher and as an ethnographer in many different contexts in academia, in industry, and also in a more of a public think tank kind of capacity. I've done research uh, across a number of domains, some of them related to how people use uh, and deploy technology in different, in different ways. I've done a lot of research on public policy regimes. Uh, my PhD research was on how on the rise of labor market and social policy regimes in the post-war era in Europe. So uh, that was mostly archival, um, but a lot of the research that I did on side projects in my doctoral time was was more qualitative and ethnographic in nature. So I have a, a diverse background. While I think of myself as an anthropologist, it's not uh, at the cost of my of also thinking of myself as a, as a social scientist more broadly or as a statistician or as a data scientist. Yeah. How did the journey with Element AI with, with social scientists start? Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um, so I've been here for close to a year and a half, uh, and I was hired to lead, uh, to be, actually be the first design researcher, in, formally hired as a design researcher, and to build out a practice of design research. There was no explicit attempt to hire someone who came from an anthropology background or anything like that. Really what they were looking for was someone who's capable of doing product research. And when the company is in a discovery phase, as we are, and as most startups are early on, uh, discovery research involves a lot of qualitative research, right? Because you don't have large you know, big data or large databases where you can mine how people think and how people go about solving their problems and the shortcuts they take to help them solve those problems or, or you know, how they prioritize which problems and which pain points are the most important for them. Those are things that you can usually only gain access to by doing things like on-site ethnographic work, uh, in-depth interviews, uh, and, other, and other qualitative methods and techniques that we have for digging around to try and find out where the large opportunities are. It's what I'd been doing at the company prior to this, which was was not an explicitly AI company, though it's a company that did use some machine learning, and it was what I was doing at the company prior to that as well. So it's not it's not new that I'm starting to do this at Element. It's something that actually lots of um, lots of technology companies do, and, and more broadly, more and more product and service companies incorporate this kind of research uh, internally. You know, there's nothing to do with AI. It has everything to do with whether or not the company understands how it. Uh, you know, what, the, what a good process is to go about figuring out where pain points and opportunities are and then generatively how to iterate over possible solutions to figure out uh, what might respond to those problems uh, without investing too much resources to build something out. Right? You're looking for ways to iteratively figure out how to, how to solve the problem. Yeah. How did you approach, um, you know, other social scientists coming in this team? Or do you have like more places for social scientists in the, your team? Uh, to be honest, it's not it's not usually the question that people it's not the frame that people have when they're talking about these things. In my team, um, there are people who come out of a I come out of a sociology and, and sort of multidisciplinary background. 
another person comes out of a computer science and human-computer interaction background, so that's a bit more psychology, but also the computer science side of things. Another person has a PhD in anthropology. Another person uh, has an information science graduate degree, and another person comes out of design school. So, you know, is design school a social science program? Not really, but they're, you know, it's multidisciplinary and they're doing things, they're learning how to do qualitative research, but from a design perspective. So what's, what, what these people share is that they understand how to use qualitative research and in some cases quantitative research to iteratively explore a problem space and think about how to generate possible solutions to it. Truthfully, social science does not do that well. That's not like that. This is somewhere in between social science and design. Design mm -hmm. being the generative side of things, social yeah. science being more analytical side of things. But people who are an amazing uh, social scientists can actually not be very good at design research because it's a very different approach to problems. Right? You're not you're not just unpacking an argument, criticizing it, exploring theory, you, you really are thinking about a solution to yeah. a problem and iteratively exploring whether that solution has an impact or not. And that's, you know, it's, it's definitely not the bread and butter of social science. Yeah, no, by, not by itself, right? Right. It's, and social science has a lot mm. to, to contribute to that. Mm. Um, and I'd say that the design research community and the UX research community lacks a lot of the rigor of social science and there's a lot to be gained by, by getting more of that. Um, but on its own, on their own, social scientists um, are, are not typically prepared to do great design research without learning a lot about the, the design side of things or the generative side of things, right? Being solutions oriented. Yeah. And this kind of multidisciplinary profile that you were mentioning, combining social science with other disciplines focused more on the effect and the doing apart, mm -hmm. uh, was that something that you explicitly uh, looked for and nurtured or um, how did it come about? In myself or in my team or? In the team. In the team. So the people I'm hiring are coming out of positions where they're already doing this. I'm not hiring, uh, and it has to do with the physics of the company and what, uh, you know, we're not yet at, at a stage in my team where we can take people who have almost no experience doing it on, you know, in the field and train them to do it. Uh, we're so small and every person needs to be an autonomous actor within a, a larger multifunctional, a multidisciplinary team that they have to be able to hit the ground running. And so with, with that, the people that we're hiring are people who are already doing this kind of work. Yes, you can cultivate more of it and you can help people lean into learn more about how they can get better in areas where they're not strong yet. But this is different from taking someone, say, from a social science program yeah. and training them to be a design researcher. Yeah, exactly. But, but I, I think I've, I've seen in, in many companies that they can, they can have like one or the other, like a, somebody that is a researcher or a, a ethnographer or doesn't necessarily have um, a multidisciplinary background in social science or psychology. So uh, I think those type of profiles that kind of are interested in both how somehow um, they found their way there, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my my own, just really quickly, my own background, I came out of um, my PhD. I hadn't yet finished my PhD when I started to work at the first startup I worked at. 
Uh, and I was not hired as a researcher. Uh, I was the very first person hired in that startup. And at that early stage, they hire people to just do many things. Um, I was not a software engineer. And so what I was doing was uh, operations, business development, sales, um, helping the engineers with things if they needed to, you know, things to be done for them. And it was only while I was out in the field, this necessarily meant that I was out in the field visiting people who were using the software that we were designing. And um, in this context, it was a food technology company. So I was on farms and I was in commercial buyers. I was at commercial buyers of fresh food, two sides of the platform. And you know, you're in contexts that are very different from the context of a typical software engineer. People, you know, people on farms have different kinds of technology uh, use patterns and the, you know they're, they're comfortable or not comfortable with different things than an engineer might be. So I'm out there and as a social scientist who's observant um, and asks, you know, you're trained to ask good questions, even though you're there to do operations or sales work, naturally what you do is you are you're observing what's happening and you're noting the discrepancy between the assumptions of the people designing the product and the reality out there in the world. Uh, it's kind of it's what we often do as social scientists. So I would come back mm-hmm. to the office and tell them all about these things that I'm seeing and all the opportunities that, they're, that we're missing and, and uh, not knowing that this was actually a job that, you know, this is a very well-defined job inside larger technology companies. Uh, but, but the team quickly realizing that this was producing enormous value for them and that then quickly became my full-time job. I just My job was to go out and do research and help us figure out what product to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in the doing that I realized how to match the analytical and research aspects yeah. of social science with the generative side of things. I yeah. learned it just in the, you know, I, I was kind of thrown into the frying pan, if you will, and, yeah. and figured it out on myself. Yeah. Okay. I have I have two follow up questions to that. So, would you say that would you call this instead of multidisciplinarity transdisciplinarity? You know, like how, what what does that do um, to the skill set that you have inside of you and those kind of boundaries between the, what we define uh, social science and how it should do and what we would define something like design? And then as a as a next step to that. Uh, would this what it is? Uh, would you see it would be a product of nature, of nurture? Like how how does it come about for you? Okay, I'll try to answer the second one. Um, nature versus nurture. You know that that's a I'm an, I'm a sample of one, so it's really hard for me to know um, what what drove me to uh, figure it out on the fly uh, so soon out of a PhD. I, yeah, I, I'm not sure I can really answer that. Like I, I was, I'm inquisitive enough to read uh, a lot uh, outside the disciplines I'm comfortable with. So I was reading about how product gets created. I was reading about how uh, to find solutions in a problem space. I was, you know, just reading, um, omnivorously online while I was going through this transition and that helped me a lot. Was that, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that any, that could ever be nature, right? Like I'm not, I'm, I think I'm naturally inquisitive, but like it, what led me to explore those specific questions, I don't know. Uh, but it also was certainly not something that came out of my PhD training. I think I look at what many of my peers are on the PhD program are doing now, they've, they've stayed much closer to the disciplinary training that they've had. They haven't gone out and found something as um, apparently different, yeah. but actually under the hood, quite similar to what I've done. So 
there's something different about my approach to finding uh, a path forward from yeah. many of my colleagues. Where that comes from, I'm not sure. I wanted to I wanted to um, ask you, Nicole. What do, what do you think of this um, topic? So I think my experience is a little bit different from uh, Jason's in that I am an anthropologist uh, who's been placed in a in a technology company and who's doing research. Uh, with AI scientists. So um, here I occupy much more of a traditional anthropological role in part because I've been uh, placed here by the Berggruen Institute, which is interested in um, in generating anthropological insights concerning uh, how AI is changing what it means to be human. So uh, I work under the Transformations of the Human Program and I'm part of a cohort of five fellows that are based uh, in AI labs and biotech labs across North America uh, who are working closely with AI scientists trying to um, trying to bring a social science lens to what is often a very uh, homogenous um, uh, group of people, mostly scientists who are speaking to one another. Um, and so, um, you know, what I've noticed in the past few years is that there is, a, it, it, there is an increasing interest in having artists, uh, social scientists, people from the humanities contribute to these debates and actually, um, you know, get involved, um, you know, provide feedback, provide insights generated from research, that sort of thing, um, and to sort of expand the, the boundaries of, of these, some of these, um, these institutions. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's my experience so far. I, I'm not, I, I don't work with product per se, I don't work with product specifically, but uh, the goal for us is to, uh, is to really generate conversations with AI scientists and, and try to get them to understand how what they do is, is, is altering some of the concepts that have guided our thinking in the social sciences um, for the past hundred years or so. Yeah. And would that also lead you into the direction of effect? Um, or you stay more or less in that space of inquiry where you help them unpack, but you don't necessarily help them make choices that steer um, effect on the product or on the um, on the group Yeah, that... I think it's kind of permeable. I think the boundary is a bit permeable. It's not exactly just a, a sort of observational activity. There is uh, there is a lot of dialogue, there's feedback, there's contributions. Um, and I think, you know, it's inevitable that things happen on both sides, right? So uh, it's meant to be a sort of intervention. It's not designed as a strictly, uh, you know, observational, uh, you know, researcher doesn't get involved in what's going on. If there are openings uh, for involvement, um, I'm, I, I do get involved. So uh, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not, it's neither a traditional yeah. anthropological role, I'd say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and just now this is a question for both of you, in your formation or in your um, space in, in, in the academic world, uh, the formation maybe, with this, with this kind of topic or came out or did you, did you at any point had experiences that led you into the space of intervention or design within the constraints of the academic environment? Or this happened more once you got out of it and started um, working in these environments? Well, um, you know, for me, I I didn't have a, a strictly academic trajectory. So, you know, in between my BA, which is also in anthropology, um, I took a year off and worked for a health consulting company. Uh, so, 
I had experience translating using anthropological methods and, and research for you know, both work in the private and public sector. Uh, and then following that, I did a master's in anthropology as well. And then again, I took a year off and uh, for, for a public hospital uh, in Montreal, uh, working in the Department of Epidemiology and collaborating with uh, epidemiologists and uh, physicians and researchers in the hospital too, uh, on a number of projects that were intended to improve patient care. So I've, I've had this experience of intervening and doing action-based research in different, in different domains. So for me, the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I, I am also familiar with academic work that takes a much more hands-off observational approach. And for me, I'm, I'm comfortable doing both. I don't think that you know, each has their own domain, their own you know, yeah. um, reasons for being, their own purposes, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think maybe the important thing to realize is when you're working, when you sort of shift in between these two domains, mm -hmm. between a strictly academic form of research and more applied forms of research that, um, as Jason was saying, right, it's, uh, you know, some forms are more generative, there's more generativity required. It, it yeah. can't necessarily be based on critique, which is, I think, what anthropologists are, um, yeah. you know, that's the sort of yeah. bread and butter of anthropology being very critical and, you know, finding holes in things. And, yeah. of course, analytical powers, all that is very important, but uh, there are other ways to do research as well. But I think, um, and I think that those are often not, um, you know, those, those skills aren't necessarily developed in a strictly academic context. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is how do you get in that space of being comfortable with that fluidity in between, right? Um, my background is also quite mixed from the very early point in my in my studies. I was doing internships or, or jobs in intervention-oriented organizations, uh, and I didn't explicitly seek them out for that reason, but probably what interested me about them was the fact that there was more of an applied or hands-on aspect to them. So, for example, I've worked for a think tank that was doing research on economic policy to provide those recommendations to parliamentarians about monetary policy, for example, or fiscal policy. I've worked as, uh, I spent a couple of years working in policy for the Canadian government, so I was working on crafting, you know, doing the analysis behind, but ultimately making recommendations to the government on labor market and learning policies. I've worked, um, I've also done plenty of more academic and, and sort of uh, higher level analytical stuff on different problems. Uh, there's been a, there's been a history of me being involved in organizations where you're using the knowledge to make recommendations or to explicitly change things yourself. Uh, my, even if you look at my early graduate work, my before I did my PhD, the graduate programs I did were development studies and forced migration studies. Uh, overwhelmingly, the people that come to study those things, even though they're, they're academic programs, the people who come to study those things are look, are very interested in development studies, not as a, not just as a site of thinking and, 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 you know, and analysis and theory building, but because they're interested in influencing the world to improve the well-being of people somewhere else in the world, uh, usually in places that are much worse off than the one that we're we were in at that time. Same thing for refugee studies. Most of my peers from those programs have gone on to work for organizations that are 
involved in doing intervention-oriented work, um, which is different from the PhD, where yeah, a lot of people went on to R1 schools and are teaching faculty or research faculty. Yeah, wow, that, that's fascinating. I'm interested in uh, what what type of methods or the uh, ways of doing research or uh, design um, are, that are you using with Element AI, and what type of discipline are they informed by? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, so my methods are, are much more traditionally anthropological here. So uh, I am doing participant observation. I hang out with AI scientists. I watch them do what they do. I ask them questions about it afterwards. I do interviews with people. Um, I tend, you know, I do, I am in my field site, so I'm here almost every day. <laughs> um, and I have an opportunity to talk to people and, um, and participate in what, what's happening here. So. Uh, you know, I also just came back from a conference in Ottawa about um, a large component of that had to do with uh, AI and decision making, for example, which is one of my areas of interest, along with explainability. Um, so there's an entire explainability team at Element AI that I that I interact with um, as I do my research. So uh, in that sense, my my methods are very much you know, the standard issue anthropological methods, uh, they serve me very well here. At the same time, if there's a need to, to explore other kinds of methods, I'm also open to that. Um, I hope to, as time goes on, actually get more involved in the doing of the work here. So um, to actually participate in producing something, which again, would take me out of the role of a strict researcher, um, but that's, that is fine in the, in the bounds of what I'm doing here and, and the sort of, um, you know, the position that the Bergeron Institute allows me allows that. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's quite flexible on, on in, for me. Um, I think Jason has a, a probably a much different experience with the product. So in design research, when we explain to people what design research is, typically we uh, we draw on the design double diamond. Uh, if I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but the idea without being able to draw, I can draw on a podcast, but you can imagine <laughs> two, uh, two connected touching diamonds um, or, or squares turned on their side. Um, the first diamond uh, is meant to be reflective of the process we go through to focus on what the right problem is for us to be focusing on. And once you've settled on uh, a good framing of a problem, the second diamond is about exploring what the right solution is to that. Over the course of those two diamonds or that process, we go, we move from discovery research through what we call formative research to summative or evaluative research uh, over time. And the methods that we draw on are a bit different as that evolves. In discovery research, we do a lot of in-depth interviews, contextual inquiry, kind of ethnographic style stuff. Um, how much we do of them and how broadly we go depends a lot on the problem space that we're exploring and also the amount of time that the team has to work on this. Uh, we're never ever going to be in a situation where we're going to be working on a problem for a number of months in the discovery phase, almost never. Uh, it, the turnarounds are going to be faster and so you're going to be limited by time um, and, and also budgets for travel and so on and so forth. It's going to limit what you can do uh, from project to project. Um, once you get into, um, once you're on the other side and you're doing more evaluative stuff, this is where you've understood what problems were working on, 
you have kind of formulated a first hypothesis as to how to respond to that problem. This is what we call your your hypothesis for your MVP or minimally viable product, and then you iteratively want to prototype um, that M that MVP. Um, starting with low fidelity prototypes and moving to higher fidelity uh, and, the, and the idea behind doing low fi or low fidelity prototyping is that you can you can create a mock-up um, something that looks like software or looks like a product very easily um, if you do it only on paper or if you use something like keynote or powerpoint to make it look like it's software and the idea here is to put very little time into um, rendering a visual representation of your hypothesis that allows you to then go out and um, query the world with that uh, prototype and get feedback uh, and the feedback the, the fidelity should be only high enough such that it allows the person on the other side the user to understand what it is you're trying to do and to effectively give you feedback about whether or not they find that to be valuable if you can do that in an hour or two um, and get feedback, high quality feedback, you've won. If you've spent an, a month or two building fully functioning software to render visual a hypothesis only to learn that it is uh, not the right hypothesis, but you've wasted a lot of time, right? So you start with the low fidelity and you move up the, to the fidelity ladder as we gain confidence in our hypothesis adjusting all along. So that kind of research involves uh, something that typically social scientists don't dip their toes into, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's much more yeah. on the, the design side of things where it's about iteratively testing prototypes. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of the day, the observation skills and the question ask and asking skills and the task design skills that go into designing a good user test, mm -hmm. if you're a good social scientist, these things are really easy to learn. Okay. And I'd say it's actually, you can do a much better job than if you come from, on the other hand, someone who's been trained in generative te techniques, but has not been trained in how to ask good questions or how to know when you're asking leading questions or uh, to know anything about sample sizes or, you know, and then you've got to learn the trappings of social science. Uh, which I think are much harder than learning the mechanics of running a user test and then using your critical and research skills, critical thinking and research skills to make sure that the test is being done in a way that allows you to learn as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a far, like, if I could, if I could pick anything, the, the, the skills of a superstar uh, social scientist where you have analytical prowess and understand rigor are, are the harder things to have, I think, and, and mm -hmm. are super valuable, assuming the person is open to learning a lot about the design side of things yeah. as well. Yeah, but you were mentioning at the beginning that the way you build a team uh, was getting people that already have this kind of experience, right? That the social scientists uh, that have already learned uh, the mechanics. How do you think somebody like that would, what would be the space where they would get to learn these mechanics, that where they would have that kind of, um, yeah, possibility. Well, so in, in my context, what happened was I took a big risk and I was willing to um, start working for a startup where I was the first employee and I made it up as I went. 
And really, really small startups are usually um, desperate to find good talent because they don't have a lot of money. Okay, uh, so you have to be you have to be a kind of person who's willing to take the big risk of the insecurity of a small startup and the low pay, with the possibility of learning a ton as long as, yeah. as long as you can teach yourself a ton. And that's what I did. An alternative uh, is to go and work for a really big organization, um, like you know, you take the likes of Google or something like that. Google hires tons of people uh, right out of school into their user experience or the design research teams because they have such a big operation and it's so uh, formalized at this point that they can easily train up people to become good UX researchers through mentorship and through internal trainings and all these things. The hard the hard area to jump into is the sort of the mm-hmm. a startup that's a bit is a is a bit beyond the very early stage, but they haven't yet become a really large organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I think, where Element is because you need everyone to be pretty autonomous, um, mm-hmm. but you're not willing to take on new people who have very you know very little or to no experience in doing something. Um, because you're you're now capable of hiring people at a higher higher level, so it's really the beginning phase and the much more mature phase where I think the big opportunities are for someone coming out of school who has some raw skills in research but needs to learn a lot about what it means to become a design or a UX researcher where there are big possibilities. Yeah. Do you also see it as a possibility for this kind of mechanics to be learned while studying? Yes, for sure. But uh, social science programs don't have, are not the place to do that um, for the most part because, well, people teaching in the faculties and social science programs have never done anything like this in their lives. And so they're, they, I mean, they, if they know these things exist, they, that's one thing, but they might not have any clue how to teach the skills. In design schools, you do find design schools have programs or tracks or at least classes in how to do design research. Now, from a social scientist perspective, typically when you look at what they're learning is really, really rudimentary in yeah. terms of, right? But they are at least trying, trying to trust, cross the barrier. Mm-hmm. Whereas inside a social sociology program, you're pretty much never going to learn how to be, not, you know, maybe action-oriented research classes or something, but mm-hmm. for the most part, most people are not going to be able to take a class where you're solutions-oriented inside a traditional discipline. So I think in that sense, Yes, schools could be perfect, but the reality is that most schools are totally not set up to uh, help social scientists develop these skills. Yeah, you can. There's lots of online learning programs available. So if you're a student in a doctoral or graduate or even undergraduate program in social science, um, uh, you, there's tons of resources online to help you develop mm-hmm. some of these skill sets, so that when you hit the market, um, you can you, you you know you can hit the ground running much faster than if you just come out straight out of a, a classical disciplinary program and haven't learned anything else. Yeah. We've had um, 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 somebody on the podcast uh, that spoke to her experience um, doing this by herself, like getting out of uh, graduate school and then designing her own kind of mini research and then selling it to companies or using it as a proof to kind of show that uh, that, that she can um, that she can learn and apply these mechanics. Um, yeah. And for her, that that was particularly a, quite a successful route. 
But uh, I think when she spoke in the episode, she spoke to like, you have to believe that you can do it and um, how you kind of think, okay, I'm just going to do it and experiment with it and see uh, what comes out of it, if it's valuable or not. So it, it's, not, it's also not encouraged, right? Mm. Um, undergraduate, graduate and graduate programs in anthropology, the idea of what um, graduates of those programs will do afterwards doesn't really um, enter into the into the training of the program. And, and if there's an assumption on what you'll do afterwards, it's often that you'll go on to a career in academia, which as we all know, is not, uh, is not the case for increasing numbers of, of graduates of these programs. So um, there's, there's a definite need for a change in the way that, uh, that graduate and undergraduate programs in anthropology uh, approach the issue of, of what to do with the skill set. Um, it's clear that there is a need and an interest in industry for these kinds of skills. Uh, there's also a need and an interest from the graduates of the programs, which I yeah. think is something that is often not, um, it's almost like the unfeelable feeling. Like you're, yeah, yeah. you're the last to want a career uh, in, a, in the for-profit sector. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of moralizing about uh, against it. I would say in yeah. some way. Um, and and the reality is is that it's just not possible for all of the graduates of these programs to find positions in academia. And so this conversation needs to, to start. It needs to open. Uh, it is it is possible to do it on your own. It is possible yeah. to you know develop a research project. I mean, in my case, I started doing research on technology because I was interested in getting yeah. into fields, and that helped. That opened a lot of doors, but. You know, there's a lot that's just, um, it's not a clear path, right? Yeah. You're sort of forced hacking your way through it. And sometimes you find your way and sometimes you get lost. Yeah. And then, then one last question for you guys is being such a mentoring path that doesn't necessarily have a very clear uh, process or way or how, how do I, let's say, as a, as a young graduate, um, how, how do I kind of figure out what I want to do? And uh, is there any advice or maybe one advice that you would give somebody that's on this path that, that just doesn't know uh, how to approach it? My advice would be to find people who've done it already and talk to them about what they did and if they had advice for young graduates, what they would do today. Um, on, you know, we have access to LinkedIn today, you know, nowadays. It's really easy to find people who are doing this kind of work inside companies. They, the, the number of labels are not that, you know, there are not that many different labels people are using in our context, design research, user experience research, user researcher, mm. uh, sometimes even anthropologist is a title that you'll find, um, or resident anthropologist. You, know, the, you can easily, if you just Google, spend a bit of time on, on, uh, on media, I'm reading a couple of articles by these kinds of researchers, you'll pick up lingo, keywords, and then you can search for people who've done this and reach out to them. And, you know, I get sometimes get pinged by people on LinkedIn who are young students who want to learn about how I got into it. And I, I'm very frequently talked to, to people or at least write them back. Uh, you're not going to hear back from everyone, but if you keep, you know, if you're picking a bunch of people, chances are high, you'll find some people who you can talk to. And, and I think that's a, that's a great way. And the second thing I would suggest is going to things like hackathons, um, where the, the point of a hackathon, they're all over the place nowadays, is to bring together people from different backgrounds, different disciplines to work on solution oriented stuff together and you get a lot of people who've never worked before right they're still in school they've got to figure it out and you get two days and you've got to rapidly try and figure out how you can add value and how your yeah. skills are relevant 
it's not going to go well all the time, but like you're going to learn a lot about yourself and about things you need to learn for, to prepare yourself for the next time. I think it can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would say um, you know if you have the if you have the chance to do research if you're in a, if you're in an undergraduate or in a graduate program, um, develop your research project around around questions that are at the forefront of the kind of industry that you're interested in working for, right? So, yeah. I mean, the research the last research project I did was ended up being about WhatsApp as a, its use as a political tool in India, which touched on issues of fake news, um, how to regulate sort of dark social network, uh, you know, questions of politics and social media. So these were all very, um, you know, relevant questions that were that were coming up in various, various domains, particularly in industry, etc. And I think that you know, having a literacy in a certain area of the industry that you'd like to enter and, and some research experience there really also can go a long way. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you, Jason and Nicole. It, it was a pleasure having you with us today. Um, and yeah, I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.